This is the second in a series of talks by Joel on devotional practices titled Devotion 2, Prayer in the Heart, recorded October 17, 2005 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, for mystics, verbal prayer is really a preliminary practice. And it's designed to prime the pump of that love and longing in the heart, that primordial love and longing for happiness. So especially it's useful for people who have suppressed that longing and who have denied that longing, who have, as we said, hardened their hearts. It's a very useful tool for that. And often the first sign that that hardened heart is really beginning to crack open is a kind of a sense of being wounded or pierced, as it's often described. Here's what Catherine of Genoa, who's a great Christian mystic, writes about herself, although it's in the third person. A ray of God's love wounded her heart, making her soul experience a flaming love arising from the divine font. You see this imagery keeps cropping up from culture to culture, by the way, the same imagery. I think it was Julian of Norwich who used to pray to God for a wound in the heart, which, you know, if you are a complete uh, atheist and you don't know what's going on, sounds almost masochistic. And there are psychologists who look at these, particularly bhakti mystics, as having some sort of psychological problem or hang-up or something. But spiritually speaking, it's a very genuine and very wonderful thing to have happen. And for some people, it is very sweet, as Catherine seems to indicate was the case with her. For other people, it's very painful. It depends on how hard your heart was, how long it's been conditioned to be hard, how chronic that conditioning is. And so for some people, it's like opening the floodgates of all that pain and sorrow and longing that's been pent up for years. And it can be extremely painful. And it can bring real tears. Here's what Theophane the Recluse says about that. Tears are the measure of progress, and unceasing tears are a sign of coming purification. So again, things that seem terrible to us who are going through it, from another perspective, actually it's something necessary to go through. One analogy is the piercing of the hardened heart is like lancing a festering wound. You ever got a wound that's covered over, but it's still all pussy and festering and swollen inside? You have to lance it. You have to let all that pus and stuff out. And you notice we dread it. And yet, once it's lanced, once that pus starts coming out, there's such a relief. And so we allow this longing to arise and start to flow and we open our hearts and right away, the first thing it does, it starts to wash away all that false cynicism and pride, that veneer of being in control and knowing what's going on and all that stuff. So it's it's part of the necessary operation. It's preparing us for Uh, this encounter with the beloved, really, because we can't have the encounter with the beloved when we have all this armor around us. So the more our heart is open, the more it starts to be cleansed, the more opportunity there is to start getting glimpses of the beloved. You remember we started out here saying, well, we don't know, we haven't met the beloved yet. I mean, maybe you have already, but... This is for people who haven't, but who have enough of an intuition that they know that maybe they could. And so you go into your heart to meet the beloved and you find all the stuff in the way and you have to 
let go of all that, you know? And then there's an opportunity. Maybe you get a little glimpse here, there, you know? You go to that art gallery and you sit around and you drink the champagne and you nibble on the hors d'oeuvres and sure enough, there she is or he is, you know, glimpse there across the room, right? Oh, you go put your champagne glass down, go up, and then, then they're gone. But you, you've seen, you've glimpsed, you know. You'll come back to that art gallery tomorrow night, then the next night, the next night. Here's what the Sufis say about this. The Sufis call it tasting, this first encounter. Ibn Arabi says, and by the tribe, he means the Sufi community. In view of the tribe, tasting is the first beginnings of self-disclosure. It is a state which comes upon the servant suddenly in his heart. If it should stay for two instants or more, it is drinking. So notice, this is not an intellectual kind of insight, but it's not just some sentimental feeling in the heart. It's very similar to that recognition of when you see somebody and it's love at first sight. You couldn't tell anybody how or why you know or whatever. There it is. Sometimes this is described in the imagery of light. Here's Lali Shori, and she describes what happened in the beginning of her path. She says, As my faith and love grew, the darkness of the world diminished. Within and without, light began to shine. Lali lost herself in that light. What she's indicating here, in the beginning, it's a gradual thing. Things start to become transparent to that divine light that illuminates everything. Simone Weil describes certain impulses that she came to recognize as coming from beyond the ego. Sometimes this is described as the little still voice that's very hard to hear in a busy life, especially a, a life that's busy in your mind, all that chatter about yourself. And to hear this voice, we often have to get quiet. So, however it comes to you, this tasting, a vision, a certainty, a sense of light, a presence, or whatever, this will constitute your initiation. This is like being introduced to your beloved. So you, you've gone to the art gallery and you've caught a glimpse of her, and then, you know, she's disappeared and you've come back and you've come back and then you've seen her again maybe and this and that, and finally... Uh, a friend of yours says, uh, what are you looking at? I said, I'm just in love with that woman. He said, oh, yeah, come on, I'll introduce you. He said, you got your introduction here. And that's when a bhakti path can begin in earnest. If, in fact, you can feel this longing easily, if you can tap into it easily, then you don't need much verbal prayer. And in fact, at a certain point, the verbal prayer itself is going to become an obstacle. It's going to feel too gross, too heavy. You know, it's like shouting at somebody who's right in the room next to you. You don't need to get their attention that way. So once that love and longing has been aroused, ideally, all we really need to do is focus attention on that love and longing. And because that love and longing is the divine love flowing out, but we experience this as an absence, as a longing for something, if we just allow ourselves to flow with it, it will carry us back to its own source. That's the ideal here. But there are a bunch of obstacles in the way in the meantime, as we will quickly discover it when we try to do that. And... One of the problems is when we first arouse, or I should say really reawaken, because this longing that we have, as I said, is primordial. But when we start to reawaken it, it's kind of delicate and transitory. It's easy to lose track of it. Especially 
for people living a householder's life because all the stimuli in our environment kicks in all that conditioning and arouses the, the counter to that, and that's the story of I and all the self-centered concerns and the dramas and the soap operas and all that. So it's easy to be distracted from this longing. So a bhakti faces exactly the same obstacle in that regard as a janani. Here's what uh, the Christian St. Augustine says. They strive to comprehend things eternal, while their heart flutters between the motions of things past and to come, and is still unstable. Who shall hold it and fix it, that it be settled a while, and a while catch the glory of that ever-fixed eternity? So, bhaktis like Jananis experience this, this Attention gets distracted. Attention gets caught up in thoughts. In thoughts of the present, thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, back and forth, back and forth. And so what Augustine is saying, how can we hold it? How can we get attention to stay still? Just to stay still. And the solution is for bhaktis, the same as for jananis, to train attention, to ignore thought and to be still. And it's to pick some object that you can focus attention on and concentrate it on in order to train it to do that. And throughout all the traditions, by far and away, the most common object that is recommended for bhaktis is a short phrase, a word, a syllable, a prayer, a mantra that you repeat and focus attention on. Here's how the Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing describes this. If you want to gather all your desire into one simple word that the mind can easily retain, choose a short word rather than a long one. A one-syllable word such as God or love is best. Then fix it in your mind so that it will remain there, come what may. Should some thought go on annoying you, demanding to know what you are doing, answer with this one word alone. Do this, and I assure you, these thoughts will vanish. Why? Because you have refused to develop them with arguing. This is very important last point here. That if you battle your thoughts and if you answer your thoughts with counter thoughts, you're just generating more thought. And then if you start thinking about how you're battling your thoughts and generating more thoughts, you're just generating thoughts upon thoughts upon thoughts, layer upon layer, <clears throat> excuse me, of the story of I. So taking a word or a little phrase or a mantra to focus attention on is a way of cutting through that. Actually, the term mantra in Sanskrit means protection. And for an ordinary believer in Hindu religion, it means protection against uh, disease, bad luck, the evil eye or whatever. So you say a mantra and it protects you. But for a mystic, the esoteric meaning is protection against the story of I, against those distracting thoughts. In India, the practice of repeating a word or a mantra is called japa. And a very common word that's used in japa is the sacred syllable om, and here's a description from the Upanishads of how using a mantra leads you to the ultimate reality, Brahman in Hindu terminology. Take up the great bow of the Upanishads and place upon it the sharp arrow of concentration. Draw it back with a mind fixed on Brahman and strike the mark that which is eternal. Om is the bow, 
You are the arrow. Brahman is the mark. It is struck by an undistracted mind. Then you become one with Brahman, even as the arrow becomes one with the target. That's a beautiful, succinct way of putting it. And it's emphasizing the importance of concentration. Concentration. Concentration practice. Sufis call their version of this concentration practice on the repetition of a word or a phrase or a little prayer, dhikr. I'm not quite pronouncing that right. If Abdullah is here, he could give you the correct pronunciation. But it's spelled in the English transliteration, D-H-I-K-R. You might run across another version, Z-E-K-R, that's zikr. And Abdullah told me the difference comes from the fact that the classic Arabic pronunciation is the dhikr, and the Egyptian dialect pronunciation is zikr, but they mean the same thing. And what they mean is remembrance. Remembrance, and the idea is this is a way to remember God, always be in the remembrance of God. And a very common zikr is la ilaha illallah, which means there are no gods but God. But the Sufi interpretation is that there is nothing but God. So that's one standard zikr that they use. But you can use other things. Here's what Ibn Arabi says. Occupy yourself with zikr, the remembrance of God, with whatever zikr you choose. The highest of them is the greatest name. It is your saying, Allah, Allah, and nothing beyond Allah. So it's the same thing as Om. It's the same thing as the uh, author of the Cloud of Unknowing said. It's the same principle here from tradition to tradition to tradition. Very precisely the same principle. The Eastern Orthodox Christians tend to use the Jesus prayer, as they call it. And it goes, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So you just repeat that over and over. And this is what Theophane writes about it. Thoughts jostle one another like swarming gnats, and emotions follow on the thoughts. In order to make their thought hold to one thing, the fathers used to accustom themselves to the continual repetition of a short prayer. Again, it's the same thing. So just because you are following a bhakti path does not mean you can dispense with the rigors of this training and concentration. And that's another reason some people think that they'd like to follow a bhakti path because they think it has a lot less uh, discipline. They'll just go dancing in the light all day, you know, and, which... There's nothing wrong with dancing in the light all day. But most of us have this tremendous conditioning that we have to break through. And if you can't break through that story of I, if you can't get out of your head one way or another, or at least slow down the chatter, or really the most technical way to put it is to liberate attention from that, you cannot strike the mark of Brahman. And you'll end up kidding yourself. Because what will happen is your mind will spin all sorts of spiritual fantasies, feel-good spiritual fantasies. And then you'll hang out in those fantasies rather than worldly fantasies, but they will still be fantasies. So it's just crucial. Whether you're a bhakti or a janani, you have to get beyond that thinking mind. You have to get beyond it. So these are just techniques that have been developed over the centuries. And people have found them valuable and they've used them and they've passed them on and the next generation found them valuable and used them and passed them on and so forth. So it may not be right for you, but if we approach it with a little humility and are able to surrender ourselves to the practice, that's how we'll find out. The judging thinking mind doesn't know beforehand. It can't know beforehand. So let's just... Let go of all that resistance as much as we're able to and give ourselves to the practice.
and just see what happens. There is one big difference between the way Jananis will use an object of concentration, particularly a mantra, because Jananis can use mantras, and the way Bhaktis will use it. And the instruction for Jananis in any kind of concentration practice is almost always to practice detachment in relation to whatever arises. So that's phenomena, thoughts, emotions, whatever. And detachment, remember, is neither grasping nor pushing away. So if you were practicing and some deep longing arose, that's fine. You wouldn't try and push it away, but you wouldn't try to cultivate it either. And if nothing was happening, that would be fine, whatever. But for a bhakti, we are trying to cultivate this longing, this sense of love and longing, and the mantra needs to be connected to that. The mantra needs to be in somehow an expression of that. So we have to focus not just our mental attention on it, but also, if you like, the attention of our heart. And it's put that way. Often the mind and heart both have to be together in this. So it's not a question of working up uh, yourself into some artificial state of weeping and longing and all that. Quite the opposite. That might happen. This longing tends to flame up and then die down and come back to embers. But the important thing is just to keep those embers glowing, at least and to try to feel it as genuinely as possible. So not a lot of drama. Here's what Theophane says again. What you must seek in prayer is to establish in the heart a quiet but warm and constant feeling towards God, not expecting ecstasy or any extraordinary state. But when God does send such special feelings in prayer, You must be grateful for them and not imagine that they are due to yourself, nor regret their disappearance as if it were a great loss. But always descend from these heights to humility and quietness of feeling towards God. So we get the tone of this. I told you in the beginning, bhakti practice is not as precise in in the technical sense, but the attitudes are very, very important in bhakti practice. You also need to avoid the opposite mistake, which is falling into mechanical repetition, which is very easy to do. So if you do find uh, the, the mantra is just you're repeating it mechanically someplace, then you might take the Hasidic master's advice about this. Speak the words simply and devote all your attention to the holy letters and to the meaning of your prayer. It is this true devotion that will really set your heart aflame. So speak the words simply and pay attention to the meaning. And again, when we hear that, we tend to think, I should think about this. I should think about what are all the meanings of love? Let me enumerate the ways I love thee or, you know, whatever that. It's the felt meaning of your prayer or your word. The felt meaning. And I will just tell you from my personal experience, it takes time and it takes a little bit of effort, just like with meditation practice, just enough effort so you're not totally lost and it will happen. It will do you. You turn Dharma, Dharma turns you. Same principles apply here. Yeah. I find when I'm doing it, if, if I'm having trouble getting to that place where you sink into it, I'll vary the speed of the mantra, usually slowing it down helps to sink into it. Very good. I certainly can do that, especially if you're falling into a mechanical repetition. Varying the speed, slowing it down, paying closer attention, saying it more deliberately, all those things, you know, you find in your own practice, these are the little adjustments, the way you customize the practice for yourself, the things that work for you. And don't be afraid in the beginning to experiment a little bit and find out how does this work, you know. So you're given a tool, it's like 
I've handed you a hammer, which, by the way, I didn't invent. Somebody handed it to me, and I'm passing it on to you. And you have to go practice, you know, using it until you get good at it. I can't do that part for you. Only you can do it. And you're bound to smack your thumb a few times, you know, before you get there. It's just inevitable. You're bound to miss the nail. You're bound to, to knock it in crooked. You know, all those things happen when you just try to pick up a hammer and nail a nail in. A good carpenter, boy, you see them whip through. Boom, 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 you know. But that takes practice. Takes practice. Practice, practice, practice. Okay? So is there anybody who does not have a sacred word or prayer or mantra? Okay. So then... The instruction for doing a japa practice begins with posture, and different traditions use different kinds of external posture. And it's kind of interesting, actually. The Sufi orders use uh, often Arabic letters as models in which to put their body. So if you were doing, let's say, the Allah, Allah, Allah zikr that Ibn Arabi recommended, then you might shape your body into an Arabic A by putting your hands in certain positions and so forth. So then your mind is focused on Allah, your heart is focused on Allah, and even your body is focused on Allah. So it's like a total focus of your being on Allah. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the monks at Mount Athos uh, used to sit on stools in their cells, and they all had big beards, and they put their beards on their chests, and that's how they would do contemplative prayer. But in any case, whatever the posture that a particular tradition recommends, the principles are the same. And the first thing is that the body needs to be both alert and relaxed. And that's usually attained by having the spine straight, not rigid, but straight, upright and straight. And then the body, the musculature, the flesh, the skin, everything else, hangs on the spine the way a coat hangs on a coat rack. So there's no effort in the flesh at all. All the tension goes out of it. And you're just very relaxed sitting there, whether you're sitting on a, a stool or a cushion or a chair or whatever. Very relaxed, but an alert position. And then if you don't have a prescribed place to put your hands the way you would in a particular uh, Sufi order if you were trying to do an Arabic letter, uh, you find some place to put your hands where they won't fidget. So you fold them in your lap, you can place them on your thighs, palms down, palms up, whatever suits you, it really doesn't ultimately matter. And then this is the one instruction that departs significantly from a Jananic posture, the eyes. Most bhakti traditions recommend that you do this practice of japa with the eyes closed. And I have to honor that, and it's true that it's probably easier, particularly because this practice leads through deeper and deeper states. So that is no doubt easier to do with the eyes closed. However, it is still possible to enter the deepest states with the eyes open. You can in fact become so concentrated that all attention is withdrawn from all the sensory fields, including the visual field, and you won't see anything just like in dreamless sleep, but your eyes will still be open. It is possible to attain that degree of concentration and still have your eyes open. It is not easy to do. And we are not going to go that far at this point. But if you uh, feel you want to do this with your eyes closed, that's fine. If you're used to doing a meditation practice with the eyes open and you want to continue doing that and and closing your eyes feels like more of a distraction, do it with your eyes open. You may want to do it with your eyes just slightly open, a little bit more closed than you do with a meditation practice, but at least not to have that dramatic discontinuity between eyes open and closed. So I leave that up to you to decide what you want to do. 
Many traditions recommend synchronizing the mantra, the prayer, the short word with the breath. And I personally find that very helpful. And you can do it on the out-breath if it's a very short prayer or just a single word or syllable. So, om. Then the in-breath is silent and then om. On the out-breath. If you have a longer mantra or prayer, like the Jesus prayer, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, you can split it up. So you can do Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So you can split it up that way. So whatever is comfortable here, rhythmically comfortable, depending on what you've chosen as your mantra, your prayer uh, to use. This, as you'll see a little later, can also be very helpful uh, using the breath, synchronizing it with the breath when we get into prayer of the heart. But in the meantime, it also helps that concentration. The mind, the heart, and the body, in the sense at least of the breathing, is all working with the mantra as they concentrate. Then, repeat your mantra slowly and deliberately. Don't rush it. Watch for the two errors of one trying to work yourself into some extraordinary state, but also watch the error of falling into just a mechanical repetition. And you can usually correct that by varying the speed and the intensity of the mantra and things like that. Uh, Attend to whatever love and longing is genuinely aroused in your heart. That warmth, as Theophane described. And when you're distracted, as you will be, by thoughts, memories, plans, expectations, all that drama that constitutes the story of I, you just notice, simply notice that. And then you gently but firmly bring your attention back to your mantra, back to your word. If the mantra word itself has ceased at that point, you just gently start it up again, give it a little kickstart, and keep it going. Do not get into a battle with your thoughts. Do not get into a lot of judgment about your practice. All that is extraneous. All that is just more story of I. All that is useless. So it's a very simple practice. Sometimes the simplicity of the practice is what trips us up. We keep thinking there's something more I must be doing, but there's nothing more you need to do. In fact, ultimately, you're going to need to do less. But for now, this is just a help, a help to get us our minds concentrated, get us out of that story of I, out of all that thought, and focused on that deep, primordial love and longing. And that's the real point of this practice. Okay, we will do uh, three rounds here. And there's no guided meditation. We'll just plunge in and do it. If you'd like to follow our format, stop your player now and practice until you're familiar with these instructions. Then start your player again and continue with the program.
after a bhakti has been practicing a simple japa, a simple repetition, uh, up to the point where attention becomes stable fairly quickly in a normal session of formal practice, many traditions recommend as the next step what the Eastern Orthodox tradition calls prayer in the heart. Theophane explains it from an Eastern Orthodox point of view. Turn to the Lord, drawing down the attention of the mind into the heart and call upon him there. With the mind firmly established in the heart, stand before the Lord with awe, reverence, and devotion. But this business of prayer in the heart is not just known in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. It's known in uh, many of the traditions. Here's what the Upanishads, the great Hindu texts, say about it. With upright body, head and neck, lead the mind and its power into the heart. And the Om of Brahman will then be thy boat with which to cross the rivers of fear. So with upright body, head, neck, lead the mind and its power, the power of attention, into the heart with the Om of Brahman. And here's what the Sufi scholar Mir Valuddin says about it. Very simply, he says, In zikr, the thought is directed towards the heart and the heart towards God. So that's what we're doing. We're gathering all our power of thought, really. It's not our thoughts, because zikr is just one thought, but we're gathering it in the heart, and then we're directing that towards the beloved. So the actual technique for drawing the attention into the heart is rather difficult to describe. It's something, again, you have to feel your way into. But the idea is that instead of feeling the center of gravity as being in the head, located in the head, where all perceptions are taking place, attention comes down and comes to rest in the heart area, the physical heart area, or that's the sensation anyway, and the center of gravity shifts, and it's as though you're experiencing everything from the heart now. So you're seeing from the heart. You're hearing from the heart. You're sensing from the heart. You can do everything that you could normally do. It's just that now you do it from a sense of doing it from the heart. In many cultures, by the way, that's the normal position. It's assumed, for instance, that people think in their hearts. They live out of their hearts. This was uh, one of the things that the Navajo Indians told the psychologist Carl Jung when he came to visit them. They said that white people were crazy because white people live in their heads. And of course, the place to live is in your heart, not in your head. So it's unnatural to us, but it's not necessarily an unnatural thing. Yes? What about breathing? Breathing takes place, but you feel it passing through the heart. In fact... That's a perfect segue to how you can use breathing to do this. If you synchronize attention with the breath, then as the breath passes through the heart area, the first thing you can do is, as you're saying your mantra or your sacred word, see if you can drop that down into the heart with the breath as though it were being repeated in the heart area. So I'm going, om, and I'm doing it on the outbreath, om, and as, it, and as it goes down, it goes down into the heart, om, and then it starts repeating in the heart. And once I can start to do that, then attention is sort of looking down at the heart and listening to the om in the heart, and then it's as though I want to move closer to hear it, to be up close, to be more intimate with that. And so I let attention sink down after the Om into the heart. Okay? So now we'll start our rounds for the rest of the afternoon. I'm going to guide you for the first round. 
and then we'll talk about it a little bit and then see if uh, anybody's having problems and what advice might be given to help out. So, So we just begin with a simple repetition of your word, your prayer, your mantra, saying it slowly, deliberately. If you want, synchronizing it with the breath. When thoughts distract you, simply return attention to your mantra without any fuss or arguing. After you've attained some stability in this practice, use your breath to locate your heart and your chest. The breath passes through it. And try to hear your mantra being repeated in your heart.
Once you can hear your mantra or word being repeated in your heart, let your attention sink down after it, as though moving closer to hear it more clearly, more intimately. When your attention has sunk all the way down into that space of your heart, relax your effort somewhat, but continue listening to your word or your mantra with as much genuine devotion as you feel. Let your word or your mantra express that primordial longing you were born with, that longing for happiness, for peace, for love. If that longing grows stronger, give it more room in your heart. Open your heart wider.
if it just smolders faintly, like the embers of a fire, sit with it as you would in front of a hearth late at night. So what was your experience with this attempt to bring attention into the heart? Yes. I was amazed at how comfortable that felt. Huh? And it was easier to uh, concentrate. <clears throat> it was like, oh, that's where it's supposed to be. That's right. And one of the major reasons for doing that is, as Theophane said, to get out of the head and you're less distracted by thoughts and all that. It's much easier. If you can get into the heart, it becomes much easier just to rest on that mantra. Very good. Yeah? Um, this didn't happen just now, but I did have the experience of um, not feeling like the attention was just here. It's sort of expanded out. It was still hard, but it, it went and went and went. That's fine. You're not trying to confine the attention in a physical space. 
And actually, when you get into the emotional heart, it's the feeling of more and more space. So it's a little bit like entering these spaces of the heart. You sort of pass through the eye of the needle of the physical heart, and it opens up into a larger space of the emotional heart. Then that opens up to an even larger space of the spiritual heart, and that opens up to the infinite space of the radiant heart. So it's not surprising that you feel that, and that means you're moving through those heart places. But stay with the practice, whatever is going on in terms of your sense of expansion or not. Yes? The way I would describe it as uh, uh, dropping into the heart and imploring, uh, petitioning uh, with an emotion. And I find immediate feedback. Um, that is, it's sort of a, an emotional dance where you feel like you get some sort of response and then you you go back into it again with that same, you know, you can't describe what it is, emotion, a sensation, um, and uh, it slowly builds up. Yes, indeed. The only thing you just have to be a little careful here is you certainly want to have that sense of imploring out of the sense of longing, but you want to make sure that you're not making it concrete what you want other than the divine, the beloved. Once you start petitioning for specific things, you know, like, you know, I'd like a new car next year. Mine's getting kind of old. Then you're setting yourself up for disappointment, disillusionment, suffering, and all that. So you're leaving it up to the divine, the beloved, to give you what you need. But you certainly... Uh, want to be in the position of being open to it, and that is that sense of imploring and whatnot. Yeah. Robin, did you? Um, well, I guess I didn't notice so much physically attention going back into my head as much as it not staying in my heart. You know, it just seemed like, um, you know, I would breathe down into my heart and think of my word and then um, I do that and keep doing it but it didn't feel like it felt artificial mm -hmm. and maybe I just need to do it and relax with it like you say is this the first time you've done this kind of practice well except the little bit that we did in the foundations group okay but you haven't done extensive practice with it so that's the difference that's the difference right there so I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I just think it's a question of beginning a practice. And this is usually what happens in the beginning of a practice, just that kind of phenomenon. Yes, Sherry. Um, last night I wanted to ask you, so what do you do if your heart seems to be the size and the texture of a golf ball? And um, over the lunch hour, I just repeated the mantra and walked around the parking lot. And... Um, this time when you gave the instruction, I um, used the mantra and went to my heart and it seemed to just just grow and then tears just started coming. It was like, I come home. And I haven't been here in a long time. I'm, I'm a mental type on the right? and, you know, I stay in my head. And so the Janani has been very compatible with ego. Right. And so this is a step, a big step out. This is why this is a quicker but often more searing path to go. And you are just experiencing what we were talking about a little earlier, the hardened heart that's, you know, starting to crack open to say it's getting, you know, a little bigger. Like that sense of a golf ball is really a beautiful image for the hardened heart, you know what I mean? And then that sense of coming home. I mean, coming home. Because this is our home. The source of all this is our true home. And that's a common uh, way of expressing it in all the traditions. And it was certainly, for me personally, that was the thing that struck home with me. Aha, when I got that image, I knew what the whole path was about. I'm going home. So this is beginning to happen to you. Okay, let's try it again. 
And if you're having difficulties and stuff, you know, play with it a little bit. This isn't rigid. Experiment a little bit. Okay? You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you're thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and practices.